suffering, Nibbāna. And I thought there are about, I'm not quite sure of the number, maybe five texts, four texts, they'll just put together. And then there are two texts after it, number 10 and 11, the questions, um, that I thought I'll leave till tomorrow. And there... They were also about the cessation of suffering, Nibbana, but they're the most, some of the most famous descriptions there are. So let us not rush them. Yeah. So, in a way, just picking up a little of these other questions, and I was contemplating, well, what's helpful because there is a lot that could be said, even just about one piece of each of them. And how do we keep all this grounded in our own experience? So that it's not some abstraction that's not really helpful. That's my question and I guess your question too. What does this mean for us? And I'm thinking of talking about my mother this morning, yeah. And what we see there is a possibility that we all have in any moment that we recognise the way things are. Yeah, we're actually with the way things are, and that this is a refuge place. It takes a kind of letting go. And what's let go of is our tendency to look over our shoulder at the past, so to construct a past from our memories. And what is let go of is our tendencies to look forward into the future and out of usually fear we construct a whole lot of ideas about it and expectations. Yeah. So when we actually just come into the here and now, most of us, even if it's painful, have the capacity to meet it. Yeah. And it feels very different. Yeah. And you know, my mother, I don't know, but I was about to say she's not an arahant. But who can know about each other? <laughs> but she, you know, there are times when she suffers, and there are times when she has enough understanding to just be present to what is going on. Yeah, and it's very nice to be with somebody when they're in that space. 
Isn't it? She's still there, rattling pots and pans in the kitchen. No, it's, it's not a dead space, because that can be our fear. It's actually more available space. You know, what it might have been like if she was still weeping and gnashing about it. It's not such a happy thing, is it? So what Lumpur Cha would say, let go a little, you get a little freedom. Yeah. Let go a lot and you get a lot of freedom. Yeah. So as we're talking about this, we're talking about this ability we have to let go and be here with what is happening. Yeah. To and you see in different ways this experience of freedom is taught, talked about, and to some extent we experience in, in meditation where we're freed out of the coarser way the hindrances manifest. Yeah, they in meditation, in retreat, they kind of calm down a bit. And that has a particular quality of freedom. It's very nice. Just not to be assailed by our, our mind's negativity or our mind's hungers. And all, the work also, and that's why we keep looking at a Nietzsche and looking at how we construct the world, is to let go and uproot the deepest tendencies. So, Nibbana, the Buddha talks about it here. And to recognise maybe we're not just all going to go and let go of everything and come into a state that's freed out of obscuration immediately. But we can, moment by moment, stop doing suffering. It's an activity. So, as we come into this text, it's to be aware that he's speaking to Brahmin students. It gets a bit metaphysical. And there, if anyone spent time in India, there is a whole tradition of really advanced metaphysical thinking. So it's these folk are really conversant with kinds of subtle metaphysical concepts that we don't normally talk about. The other thing about them is they come from a religious tradition, they're called Brahmins, and they're seeking union with Brahma. So they have a conception of developing meditative states that are incredibly expanded and blissful, and then when they die, they are united with Brahma. So it's not a it's not a liberation in this lifetime. And that is what the Buddha was practicing. His meditation teacher, his last meditation teacher, was teaching him the same meditation as some of these Brahmins are practicing. 
this sphere of nothingness. Yeah? It's a particular meditative space, state of mind. So he practiced it, and then he said, but it's limited. It doesn't do what I'm interested in. Yeah? He was interested in coming out of the rivers of desire, these great oceans of suffering. Yeah. So as you're hearing it, it's good to just be aware of the context in which it's been given. The other thing I thought might be helpful is to tell you about a dream I had because it illustrates some of this. And this was years before I became a Buddhist practitioner and I'd been doing a lot of practice like these guys, you know, practicing within a Hindu tradition that was about expanding the mind into very stable meditative states. Some of you will have done it. Yeah? With mantra, with all kinds of things. You know, getting this really refined kind of mind. And what I would do is I'd practice this kind of meditation and I found I had to set my alarm clock. And I had a rule that when my alarm clock went off, I had to come out of meditation. Yeah. And I was talking to one of you about it. And this whole experience, of, this was so lovely. And when I came out of meditation, I had to deal with how complex and difficult my world was. That was very dreadful. Yeah? And really the contrast between these two was excruciating, as you would imagine. Mm -hmm. But I had this dream, and in this dream, like many of you have, dreams that give us a kind of hint, I was there and a guru appeared. And so I was I knelt down and made this offering, actually chocolate. <laughs> which was a bit prophetic but not really <laughs> chocolates and he said to me you asked about happiness yeah and I thought well did I and then I realized <laughs> this whole activity was about happiness yeah and he said the Buddha will teach you about suffering <laughs> And then, in the dream, this huge ocean of suffering appeared. And in the dream, I walked straight into it and drank it. Oh. And it was blissful. And it what? was blissful. It was blissful? Yeah. Just scooped it up and drank it. And it was, uh, over the years, it's been an incredible encouragement. Mm that it looks like it's, why are we dealing with suffering? It's because it has this profound quality to it. Yeah. So keep, as we're dealing with these texts, we need to keep a real careful eye on what we're doing with them. Because they can seem annihilistic, they can seem negative, 
but to keep coming back to this ground that the Buddha said they were for our well-being. And you've all tasted that taste of letting go, haven't you? Yes. Yes. Exactly. So let's read the text, or some of it, and see where it goes. Um, it always feels to me it's enough to hear it. It's so lovely, but to yes. You might be correct. Um, no. Yes. Yep. Is that better? Yeah. No. I've turned it on. Oh. Say thanks, Bob. Yep. Don't worry if you didn't hear me before. <laughs> so, here we are at Dotika's question. The Brahmin student Dotika was next to speak. Master, he said, I'd so much want to hear you speak. Please, Master Teacher, explain to me. Can a student of your teachings find the calm of cessation, nirvana, for themselves? Yeah? I mean, this is our inquiry, really, isn't it? Can we... Is this about some other person, or is this actually something we're capable of? So, Dotika asks, <coughs> Any student of my teaching, said the Buddha, who is eager, intelligent and aware, here and now can find the calm of sensation for themselves. It's very clear, isn't it? Yeah? I can see now, said Dotika, that there is in this world a person who has nothing, a Brahmin, a wanderer. I bow down and honour you, sir, the eye that sees everything. Please, man of Sakya, free me from confusion. And the Buddha said, it is not my practice to free anyone from confusion. <laughs> <laughs> And how it can feel, well, we just want someone to knock us on the head. <laughs> no. So, I feel a lot of empathy for Dotika. Don't you, as you hear him, you know, he's, he's come and wondered if it's even possible for him. And then really just wants someone to do it. <laughs> But the Buddha is saying, no. When you have understood the most valuable teachings, then you yourself will cross this ocean. Have pity on me, Brahman, sir, said Dotika. Please teach me the way of detachment so that I can know it as it is, so that I can live in this life in the peace and independence that is free as the air and space. I will explain that peace which is not based on hearsay and is attainable here and now. It is a peace which, when a mindful person understands it, releases their hold on the world. 
Master, teacher, said Dotaka, it can only bring me joy to hear about an ultimate peace which a mind, when a mindful person understands it, releases their hold on the world. So in every direction put the Buddha, above, below, around and within, there are things you know and recognise. When you realise that these are the things that tie you to the world, then you can lose the thirst of craving, the desire for constant becoming. So, it's challenging, isn't it? And it's, how do we pick this up and understand it? Because the Buddha's not, it's, it's within the world that he's teaching this, not about pulling the blinds down and locking ourselves inside. And so it's, in my experience of it, my understanding of it, it's about how we relate to things. And that when the mind is really open and it's really resting back from the kind of clutching at conditions, it's much more flexible so that things are more mutable. There, no tissue box is only a designation. We all agree this is a box of tissues, but it's only a designation. It's not this thing's inherent quality. And in fact, if I turned it that way, it could be a <coughs> cup holder. Yeah? So it's the sense that which we have already decided what everything is. The mind has come into a kind of rigid relationship with everything. So to hold this understanding of uncertainty about even what things are. Now we need to be able to function, don't we? So it's handy have a conventional sense of this, but then also to have a lighter sense of it, and particularly in relation to each other, and particularly in relation to our thinking mind. That we're really holding, we're not, we're not, because grasping makes things really solid and tight, and it's just about loosening that. Letting things be more open. And the knowing and recognizing can be part of we've just we've already decided what everything is. You know? We know what so and so's like. Yeah. We've lost this flexibility, this responsiveness. Yeah. You know what it's like if you've already decided what everything is. It's very painful. Yeah? So it's about softening us. I was thinking of an example. I was thinking of asking yeah. you for an example. And one came into my head, I think about relationship between two people, an intimate relationship, a, a healthy relationship. This is how I think. Is there are times when they're very close and but then there are times when they move apart. 
and their relationship is kind of coming apart and coming together, coming apart. So it's flexing. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? It's, in a way, it's anything where we're getting so we're more receptive to what is actually true at a present moment. Yeah, what's needed. So there may be times when we need to be close and there may be times when we need space. Yeah. So it, it's about most things have a rhythm and a flow, most alive things. Yeah. So letting that flow happen, letting the a nature of things, that things will change. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So on to Upasiva's question. And this particular text, there's a whole nother text about. So let's not you know, we don't we don't want to get too involved in it, but it's really <coughs> showing the difference in the Buddha's understanding of this kind of meditative state. His sense that we're not about creating particular states of mind, which is radically different. So, the Brahman student Upasiva asked a question. Man of Sakya, he said, it is not possible for me to cross a massive ocean alone and without help. You are the eye that sees everything. Please tell me what I can use to help me cross the ocean. The master said, told Upasiva, use these two things to help you cross the ocean. The perception of nothingness, and the awareness that there is nothing. So that's the traditional meditation. Give up sense pleasure and be free from doubts so you will begin to see and long for an end to craving. Master Siddhupasiva, when a person <coughs> is free from attachment to all pleasures and depends on nothingness and everything else they let go they are freed in the supreme freedom from perception. Yep. Freed from perception. But they will but will they permanently be there and not return again? So we're a bit like this whole notion of going to Brahma. When a person is free, said the Buddha, from all sense pleasure and depends on nothingness, they are free in the supreme freedom from perception they will stay there and not return. Master, you have the eye that sees everything, said, sees everything, said Upasiva. If this person stays many years in this state without returning, will they be called and freed their self? Say whether consciousness will exist for such a person. It is like a flame struck by a sudden gust of wind, said the Buddha. In a flash it has gone out, and nothing more can be known about it. It is the same with a wise person freed from mental existence. In a flash they have gone out, and nothing more can be known about them. Please explain this clearly to me, sir, through perceiver. 
you, a wise person, know precisely the way these things work. Has the person disappeared? Do they simply not exist? Or are they in some state of perpetual well-being? When a person has gone out, when there is nothing by which you can measure them, that by which they can be talked about is no longer there for them. They can no longer, you can no longer say that they do not exist. When all ways of being, all phenomenon are removed, then all ways of description have been removed. So it's not a blanking out. So I might just jump to Himika. Himika spoke. Before Gautama began to teach, he said, All teachings I had heard, he only said, This is how it used to be, and this is how they're going to be. Everything was based on tradition and hearsay and just increase my doubts. So this is a oft lament of some of the Brahmin students. You know, that they they come from this great lineage of teaching that tells them you know it's not opaniacal, you know, not here and now, not apparent. It's just kind of being handed down. The Buddha used to describe it like one blind man leading another. So there's this whole tradition of, of thought and for Hemaka it's been very painful you know, just hearing things that have felt speculative so please now wisdom master explain to me the way you teach to put an end to craving explain to me the way you teach which when a mindful living person knows it releases their hold on the world. The removal of desire and passion for pleasant things, seen, heard or cognized, is the sure path for the realization of Nibbana. Understanding this, those who are mindful have attained this tranquility of complete Nibbana in this immediate life. They are calmed forever. They have crossed the attachment in this world. So it does, may not sound so radical to us you know, because we have had the example of the Buddha but for the youths this is radical teaching that it can actually, it's actually possible to be alive and to be awake you know, to have what, someone left me a note about one of the the um, nuns in the time of the Buddha talking about her experience of Nibbana, that like darkness being sundered, you know, the, the sense of the darkness of ignorance just being swept away by a deep insight into impermanence. And then she continued her life, living from a place that wasn't obscured by ignorance.
So we get more descriptions of what this might be like. What, sir, is the nature of freedom? So what is this third noble truth like? He questioned the master. For one who has no more desire for pleasure goes beyond doubt and lives without craving. It doesn't mean there's not an experience of pleasant feeling. The Buddha is talked about of having the most sophisticated taste buds, the most incredible healing. So it's not that he was, the dial had been turned down so there was no experience going on. He was incredibly awake to taste, to sound. So, what is the nature of freedom? When, no, when one has no more desire for pleasure, goes beyond doubt, lives without craving. A person has no more desire, said the Buddha, who has gone beyond doubt and who lives without craving, has indeed found the final freedom. For them there is nothing more to be freed. All seeing sapiens, said Todia, please explain one other thing to me. I want to know how to recognize a wise person when I see them. Does the wise person still have any desire, or are they completely wishless? Do they still need to learn, or is their wisdom complete? A wise person, Todia, said the Buddha, does not have desires does not need to learn. They are wishless. They have freedom. And you can recognize them because they are a person of nothing. They are not hanging on to pleasure or to being. So, what would it be like to be a person of nothing? We're, we're no longer sucking in the world. We're not accumulating a whole lot of stuff. I don't mean physical stuff, because we need things to live a life, but a whole lot of ideas about who we are and what other things are. And we're living from this place of actually being present with the way things are. So it's an immediacy rather than an accumulation. The Buddha accepted monasteries. He accepted food. They had requisites. They had medicines. You know? He could have said to him, well, what about Anatta Pindaka's monastery? which he must have had around this time, must have been given it. But he was a person of nothing. So using what was needed 
without this sense of tightness around it, taking care of it, taking responsibility for it, taking responsibility for the community of people that came around him, responding. So nothing is not the blinds drawn and the door closed. Check it out. Check out what it might feel like to just keep lightening up. And a little text just to end with for you, Bob. Rooted in desire, friend, are all things. So this is from the Anguttara. Born of attention are all things. Arising on contact are all things. Converging on feeling are all things. Headed by concentration are all things. Surmountable by wisdom are all things. Yielding deliverance as essence are all things. Merging in the deathless are all things. Terminating in Nibbana are all things. Yeah? <laughs> That's why it doesn't matter what the condition is that we're waking up to. Its nature is Nibbāna. I find this deeply encouraging. Terminating in Nibbāna are all things. So in this state where they're not constricted, bound and occluded by ignorance, they're in this state where when you drink the water of suffering is indescribably exquisite. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.